Hi, welcome to Atrium Talks. Hi, Bhagwan. Hi, Deepa. Bhagwan, I'm going to start with a question. Yeah. What do you think is the source of dominance of the human race relative to other species? What explains our smartness, our ecological dominance, and our technological advancement? What explains it, you think? Our brains. We have bigger brains. Raw, innate intelligence. Yeah and superior mental abilities is your answer. Yes. Not quite so, says uh, Joseph Henrik, okay. author of the book that we're going to discuss today, which is Secret of Our Success. Yeah. You know, let me begin with this observation that other primates outperform us, eclipse us on several cognitive tasks like information processing, memory, various dimensions of fluid intelligence that, you know, they eclipse us. He articulates this experiment that was done by Esther Herman. You know, they take about 100 odd chimpanzees, 30 odd orangutans, 100 odd human kids, uh, toddlers, and they give them a variety of IQ tests, mm -hmm. right, uh, which tests their intelligence on several tasks uh, related to functioning, you know, in, in the physical world and, or, and social world. And what they find was incredibly interesting. This was very counterintuitive to me that the chimpanzees did better than us on tasks such as memory, uh, yeah, on information processing speed, on spatial reasoning. But in the area of social intelligence, the yeah. humans wiped the floor. Therefore, what explains our survival wherewithal resides in our collective intelligence, in our ability to learn from others, in our ability to live in widely interconnected groups, and in our ability to acquire cumulated cultural know-how over time. It's cultural evolution, cultural genetic evolution, translating into this super drug of collective intelligence. And that's what drives our survival and success as that a race. That is brilliant. That is truly insightful. So you are telling me that my dominance is not because of my brain. My dominance, if there is any, is because I can learn from you. Yes, yes. And what's happened over time, the process of cultural genetic evolution that he talks about, is that the greater our cultural wherewithal over time, it's also led to us placing more importance on it and acquiring more of it, in turn creating more need for it. So there is this positive feedback loop, yeah. right? For example, with the advent of agriculture and domestication of cattle, they found that genes that permitted the intake of milk, right, lactose tolerance, started to increase significantly amongst Europeans. And we know that uh, there are part of Europe where people are lactose intolerant. Correct. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. But with the advent of agriculture and domestication, lactose tolerance proliferated in Europe. Genes that allowed for lactose tolerance proliferated, leading to greater domestication. So the ability to engage in social intercourse is what makes us more intelligent, more dominant, and more in control of uh, our nature. Correct. And that's reflected in the fact that when you deprive groups, it's called the Tasmanian effect, uh, when you deprive groups of that interconnectedness, the cultural norms go away. Oh, okay. Right. So therefore, you need a certain critical mass of people and you need a degree of interconnectedness amongst those people for those norms, heuristics, rituals to thrive and grow.
it brings up the question whether these group preferences can change. Is it that these rituals, these norms, etc., how easily can they be assimilated from one group to another? And what are the mechanisms for assimilation? That's right. And it's very hard. We can't force fit this idea. And, you know, a number of people have been talking about it lately that, you know, let's not force fit the Western ideas. Chetan Bhagat had this op-head in the Times of India saying, we don't understand the common man. Our former CEA professor Subhu has been talking about that, you know, the West ideas are not relevant for India. So I think we need to pay attention to it and see what is going to work in the local context. So there is this other book uh, uh, he has called The Weirdest People on Earth, where weird is an acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And he argues that the weird people are, in fact, rare. It's not the norm in the world. And they are also very peculiar. Correct. There are obviously very many collectives. And the norms, heuristics, etc. that characterize one group are not, in fact, he makes the point, are not easily transferable to another collective. They cannot be imposed on another collective. The context matters. Context matters because if you impose a set of norms that works very favorably in one collective on another, it may lead to adverse outcomes or may not work at all. You have a great example of this, Bhagwan. We've talked about it. That's right, yeah. So there is this idea that, you know, we should focus on the individual, which is a very Western idea that, you know, we need to use market mechanisms, the insurance should be targeted towards the individual, which is great in terms of, you know, leading to productivity and other things, but it's not just that. Take the example of, Farmer insurance and uh, insurance against bad monsoon, which is something that, you know, we are born with, you know. So I'm also reminded of novels by Premchand in which a great degree of misery was caused by a bad monsoon. That's because we didn't have insurance. We didn't have insurance against monsoon. We relied on a group, but we relied on a group that was relatively small, a village perhaps, or a family. So the intervention that people tried was, why don't we sell insurance to individual farmers? And it completely failed, completely failed, didn't really work, okay? So I, I wrote an article on that saying, maybe a target of the individual was the wrong one. Maybe it's the groups who should be buying insurance. So the entire village could buy insurance, a temple could buy insurance, a church could buy insurance, and then they could use their informal group mechanisms to pass on the benefits to the individuals. So we need two layers. We need a layer of informality, a group, kind of like a a risk-sharing mechanism using social mechanism rather than using market mechanisms at the right level. But change is good, Bhagwan. And I think in the the same book, Weird, where uh, Hendrik talks about how, for instance, when the Roman Catholic Church banned, you know, marriage in same-kin families, that led 
you know, people to expand their collective and look for mates afar. And it expanded the boundaries of their social groups, right? Yes. And that led to various other individual related outcomes, right? Because you had to break away from the family and then you had to pursue, individual pursuit became more important and it led to a whole different set of outcomes. So it's, I think these norms can also be changed and that's where the role of leadership starts to come in, right? right. Uh, Because who do you and I imitate? What are the norms that you and I adopt? We look for credibility enhancing signals and therefore we look to leaders, you know, to display commitment, to a certain norm. We look to them for effecting change. And therefore, you know, I think it's important. There are lessons for leadership here as well. Yeah, so leadership matters. People matter because they can bring in these discrete changes that puts us on a different path. Like the example you gave of the Roman Catholic Church, which banned sort of kin marriage and that allowed people to look outside. I think there's an important lesson there because... On one hand, saying that, you know, let's not force with the Western ideas, the danger might be that we might become too parochial. And we might say, okay, let's close off. And I think the two books that Henrik is talking about is saying, no, you can have context and group ideas, but these groups need to interact with each other. So we need to have trade, we need to have insurance, perhaps at the group level, and we need to reach out to the larger audience in the world to be able to take their ideas and perhaps use them in a way that fits our culture. Also, I think, you know, this is important for reasons of innovation. The wider your collective, the greater the opportunities for intercourse, as you said, of ideas. And therefore, you know, this becomes incredibly important for innovation as well. Right. So it's not just diversification. Of course, we get diversification. diversification. That was the idea of monsoon hedging. But you're saying when ideas flow, and we have known this. That's why, you know, when people traveled from one country to the other, they brought back not just goods, they brought back ideas. And that's what caused the human race to flourish. Correct. And therefore, although the West, the ideas of the West don't apply to the East and vice versa, it's important for the West and the East to talk to each other, to learn from from each other. And it's also important for these different competing, if the survival of our species depends on cultural genetic evolution, it's important to have competing variation and selection systems. It's important to have these different collectives compete so that the best can be selected and acquired and translate into survival and growth. Yeah. So what we're saying is that pay attention to the context which can be small and local, but don't close yourself off. Yes. Stay open to ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Deepa.